Welcome to Urbanism Vancouver, a podcast that looks at how we can make Vancouver a better urban experience. Together, we'll dive into the workings of our built environment in Vancouver and discuss how we can get involved in our community. Hi, I'm your host, Helen Loy. With each episode, I hope to share with you some insights from my industry experience and explore how we can make Vancouver a more livable and affordable place. I hope that you will learn a little and perhaps be inspired to be more involved in impacting positive change. Before we get started today, we want to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded and produced on the traditional and unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh nations. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging, and recognize the enduring connection they have to this land. We strive to have our conversations contribute towards reconciliation and work towards sustainability and equity for all the custodians of the lands. In earlier episodes, we discussed existing and potential policies that may support more abundant and affordable housing. However, not only do we need to change some of our housing policies, we will also need to change the way we view and value housing. As you'll hear shortly in my conversation with Michelle Sisa, some of those changes may come with uncomfortable conversations that challenge our definition of housing wealth and of our perceptions about the value of home ownership. I'm so excited to welcome Michelle Sisa. Michelle is an award-winning freelance journalist and editor in Vancouver. She is editor of Indigenous-led conservation coverage for the Narwhal, and also a contributing writer to The Walrus and a contributing editor to McLean's. Michelle's writing covers a variety of topics such as contemporary Indigenous issues, reproductive rights, parenting, the climate crisis, and rollerblading. Michelle, thank you so much for taking time to join us today. Is there anything else you wanted to add and sharing a bit about yourself? Just a very important clarification that I am a roller skater and not a rollerblader. Oh, very sorry. different subcultures. Ooh, okay. No, it's okay. It's okay. I feel like a lot of people mix them up because they're equally uncool, but <laughs> I don't know how to rollerblade. <laughs> I feel like I would fall even more than I do roller skating. That's my only clarification. Okay, I'm going to jump right into it. Some of the things that you've written about that I really want to talk about today are topics such as home ownership and Indigenous-led housing and development. Most recently, I think you wrote a piece this year for McLean's, and the title was The End of Home Ownership, which I really enjoyed reading. The right to safe, secure, and affordable housing is an important ideal that everyone is working towards and talking about in the public. And yet it's becoming more and more of a distant dream, especially since we're tying it so closely with like that it has to mean owning a home. And so I just find that really fascinating. Maybe you can tell us a bit more about this piece and kind of what your thoughts are in summing it up as to how do you view the idea of housing and of home ownership and kind of what that might look like in the future? The origins of this piece are kind of embarrassing, but the truth is I think it started with a tweet that I posted maybe a year ago, which was 
there was some other viral tweet. This is like the terrible nature of social media where things sort of build on each other in a way that's like incomprehensible later. But someone had a tweet about how young people couldn't buy houses because they got married later in life. And so people used to get married in their 20s and then they could afford to buy a home with two incomes. And I replied to that to say, in 1976, my mom bought a house in Vancouver in Caresdale for like, oh my gosh, I have the exact amount in the tweet, but it's like $46,000. And if that had kept pace with inflation, it would be worth about $230,000 today. But it's not because it's on the west side of Vancouver. Just the land is worth over $2 million. And every year, BC assessment reminds us that the the structure itself is worth like $10,000, which is the absurdity of Vancouver real estate. And it was really interesting because, you know, that I think there's lots of examples like that in Vancouver of, you know, these like very modest homes that have inflated to really ludicrous values. And that's kind of been a hallmark of Vancouver real estate. But during the pandemic, something interesting that happened, interesting in a pejorative way, is that a lot of people started moving. There was this kind of surge of mobility because a lot of people who had stable employment, who had been accumulating savings from working from home, suddenly didn't have to live where they did anymore. They could work remotely. And aside from that, I think a lot of people just reevaluated their life. They want to be near family. They want to be out of the city. So there was this, this kind of giant exodus in some ways, especially from Ontario, where people were moving basically to more affordable places in Canada. And so the housing market everywhere went kind of haywire during COVID. And that was, you know, the accumulation of decades of housing policy and and financial policy, lots of sort of factors that in retrospect, you can really see as kindling for the sort of raging forest fire of unaffordability that we find ourselves in now. But one thing I was really interested to look at in that housing piece is, you know, I often see this conversation about housing as a generational split where you have a generation, the the boomer generation, which had very different circumstances in terms of affordability, especially in terms of how incomes sort of tracked with housing costs. So, you know, someone who is working full time could reasonably expect that they would be able to save enough money to buy a place to live. And that that isn't true anymore. Incomes have stagnated for decades. They've been growing very slowly. And housing prices have risen much faster. So even if you're making a good income today, you have very different opportunities than your parents' generation. But what's missing in that is something that is personal to me, which is that my parents are part of that lucky generation. So I talk about this in the piece and in my tweet, which is that they bought property in Vancouver in the 70s. And they did that on one income, on my mom's income. They didn't have any family help. They didn't grow up with money. And it was just possible then that if you had a good job and you'd save for a couple of years, you could buy a house. And as a result of that decision, I have a level of housing security in the city that most of my friends don't have. So I'm in my 30s, I have two kids, and my husband and I live in the house I grew up in. We divided it with my parents before my daughter was born. So we live on one floor and they live on one floor. And it's, mm. you know, that's an incredible privilege in the city. And it it also means that I have like kind of a stake in this housing market too, intergenerationally. I, I'll inherit some of that wealth when they pass it on, whether that's when they sell or when they pass on. Michelle's story is not an uncommon one for those who can afford property in the city and even in the region of Metro Vancouver. This not only creates increasing wealth disparity, 
but also creates intergenerational tensions as the experiences of what it takes to secure housing become drastically different when you compare previous generations with the current and future. Michelle then highlights some of the societal misconceptions about what it takes to own a home in Vancouver. And, you know, that's true of a lot of people now in expensive housing markets. And so I think it's it's something worth discussing that in some ways Canada's created this this class society where you have like a landowner class who's consolidating wealth and passing it on to their children. And increasingly in, in somewhere like Vancouver or Toronto or other cities, you know, there's a lot of cities in Ontario that are becoming increasingly expensive. And in BC, across the whole province, I think the average property price is close to a million dollars now. The only way to afford something like that if you're a young person is if you have access to intergenerational wealth. And increasingly, that means if your parents are already property owners, right? So in some ways, we're reproducing this this sense of privilege and concentrating it over generations because property has become so much more valuable. So what we see, if you look at sort of decades of, of housing prices and you know disparate wealth across owners versus renters, is this concentration of wealth among people who can buy property and especially people who use that wealth to buy more property to become investors as well. And renters are falling further and further behind and there's a degree to which, you know, they just can't catch up. And so I think it's very concerning that Canada has historically prided itself on being a meritocracy. There's this idea that hard work should correlate with opportunity, which, you know, is worth interrogating in and of itself. But that's just not true. Like somebody in Vancouver or Toronto or Hamilton can work and work and save and save, skip all the lattes and all the avocado toast. And it doesn't matter because if they were not born to parents who already own property or already have money, they're never going to have the same kind of opportunity that an elementary school teacher or a nurse in 1970s had. And I think it's really important to address that, like to unpack that idea that, you know, there's any kind of fairness in the system, that there's any kind of equity. And that I think increasingly that being a homeowner is something that does confer a lot of privilege that's no longer in some cities this like ordinary status where you're just like a common middle class person. But in Vancouver, especially, you know, if you own property, <laughs> if you own a house that you've owned for decades, yeah. you are effectively a millionaire. You have access to this enormous pool of wealth. So I just I think there's so many things we can unpack in it. And and it was fun in some ways to like dig into those in a long feature. I want to get back into something you said earlier about the privilege of owning land and then using that as a mechanism for growing your your wealth. And I see like I I see almost like a two sides of the same coin when we look at how our society views home ownership as a mechanism for success, for wealth, for like creating money, because you have people who buy homes. And yes, they might view it as I'm not doing this as an investment because I'm living in it. And I see it as like, this is just a place that I live. But yet at the same time, our society kind of expects that if you buy a property, that the value should go up like it is a good investment like we hear often you know like and that's that's kind of one of the reasons why people tell you that if you can save up buy a home as opposed to renting because it's this idea that that's how you get ahead in life but obviously in a housing crisis when somebody then takes that and like buys a second property 
then all of a sudden, like, that's something different. And so the first person who's just buying a house, who's living in it, who still expects to reap fortunes, that's not considered an investment when really it's, to me, it sort of feels like the same thing. And so I wonder, like, as we move forward and we build more housing and say we achieve closer to an ideal where everyone has access to an affordable home, how do we break that apart between like this idea of, yes, everyone should have secure and affordable housing, but then also that probably means that it's not going to be this tool where you can use buy a home, live in it, and then assume that that's just going to be like your retirement. Yeah. In some ways, like the rapid growth of property values, especially since 2008, is an aberration. So people did used to buy a home and maybe it gained a little bit of value each year. Some years it might have lost value, but the idea was they were going to stay there forever. And so it didn't matter kind of year by year. Whereas I think, you know, there has been this financialization of housing where a lot of people have gotten into the housing market because they've seen these wild profit margins where, you know, you could buy a property, wait a couple of years and sell it for just like a tremendous amount more than you paid. And so that's driven the the crisis in some ways. And that's been exacerbated by things like really low interest rates where people can borrow, they can kind of gamble on this like big mortgage and bet that it's going to pay off. Um, And short-term rentals, which have encouraged people to think of themselves as like kind of small time landlords and hoteliers in some ways. A big part of that is that the Canadian, you know, the federal government used to invest quite a bit in rental housing and low-income housing. So when there was a big housing boom after World War II, all kinds of housing were getting built, single family homes, but also apartments, co-ops. And a huge part of that was federally funded and federally driven. So, you know, the idea there was that if you were like a senior or someone who for other reasons was never going to be able to afford a home or for whom like a, you know, a four bedroom house was not appropriate or desirable, you would still have a place to live. There would be housing for you. And then in the 80s, you know, we entered this more conservative period where that funding disappeared. The responsibility for housing was transferred to the provinces, but without a lot of incentives. And what that led to, you know, over time was this growth of condo buildings and and the sort of displacement of the responsibility for rental housing from being something that governments were were building and designating targets for to sort of a byproduct of the housing market where individual owners would buy a condo or investors would buy a condo building and and use it as an investment holding and rent the units. So it became this privatized thing. And what that's meant is that like renters are really kind of at the mercy of people's investments, right? So if you rent, even if you have a good landlord, a fair landlord, someone who is not really out to squeeze you, if they sell the unit that you live in, like there's a very good chance you'll be evicted because the next person might want to live in it. Right. And lots of people are at the mercy of landlords who want to see a return on investment and see long-term renters as an impediment to that because of how rents have increased with housing pressure. So there's a lot of forces there, you know, where that financialization, that expectation that housing should be profitable in the short term as well as the long term has created a lot of instability and I think a lot of inequity. I feel like the most depressing place on the internet sometimes is like the Reddit housing forum where people... Oh God. post about, you know, where they're like, I'm pregnant and my landlord wants to evict me. And like, it's just, it's awful. If you want to feel, yeah, if you want to feel bleak about humanity, 
it's a good place to, but it is, I mean, it's also a good illustration of like, here are the tensions <laughs> when we have a system that has not created secure rental housing stock for people, you know, where everybody is in this precarious position. And then when you have personal interests up against each other, one group has a lot less power in that dynamic. And that's for the sure. one third of Canadians who rent their housing and who many of whom rent from, you know, just a homeowner with a second property that they're, or a basement suite or a laneway house that they're using as a source of income. And that's how they see it first and foremost is an income stream and somebody's housing second. I think that difference in the attitude and how we treat people when they are homeowner versus how they treat people when they are a renter is not just apparent in the, you know, things like the Reddit or the public discourse about people in terrible situations being evicted or being taken advantage of because of a terrible landlord. It's also just, I mean, all you have to do is go to a public hearing and listen to the way that people describe possible renters living into moving into their neighborhood. And it's just the concept that these people are transient, that these people might be bad for my community, like they don't care about our neighborhood because they're not here to stay. Like It's just very apparent that there's this sentiment that renters are just a different type of people. And and it's really quite insidious like how I think it comes up in so many little different ways. Yeah. I mean, I also feel like the public hearing comments are very illuminating in a grim way. But It's even like, you know, I still see people saying that like renting is for young people who don't have kids, you know, like the idea that you rent when you're in your 20s and there's no sort of understanding of the fact that many people never kind of ascend, especially now to owning and that 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 shouldn't be the goal, like that it shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't have all of our public policy and all of our government programs funnel towards homeownership with the idea that everyone will get there eventually because that's not true. And it's also not. You know, not even really possible. So there needs to be, I think, and I I do see this coming now with like more of an understanding of the housing crisis from the federal government, I think, in response to a lot of outrage at different, you know, from all kinds of people and all levels of municipal and provincial (laughs) pressure. But there, there is, I think, more understanding of that. And I think probably more resources being directed to housing targets and, and like, not just sort of perpetuating this fantasy that like eventually everyone will be in a single family home at some point in their life, like which it's I think is hard was, to reconcile. Yeah, it's very messy. I think it's it's interesting that there's this idea that the market will provide for what people need that's very hard to let go of because I think we've seen that when there are market forces that, you know, make housing really profitable and incentivize keeping some kinds of housing quite scarce to drive up its value and limit what can be built. There's just no opportunity for that. And and I think we've seen that failure play out now in a lot of different cities in Canada and will probably play out in more before this problem is solved because it takes a really long time to build housing. Like it's going to take a long time to build the housing that we need and change the housing policies that need to be changed. And I think in that time, things are going to get a lot worse. Yeah, I agree. I I mean, we see politicians focusing on funding now. Like, I think it's a good thing that we're hearing so much about it. There's a lot of, you know, federal government injecting a lot of money, and then provinces are hopefully coming on board and forcing municipalities to take a real hard look at their housing starts and completions. 
and municipalities as well are looking at zoning regulations and reforming some of that. But still, the reality is that we need a lot more public funding. We need a lot more public owned housing or nonprofit housing or non-market housing. But all of that comes from public funding. And again, when you talk about that, there's there's also a big like group of people in society that are like, well, why should I give money to the government to build things for people to live right in the city when I live next door and I worked like four jobs and, you know, you know, scrambled just so I could get here, right? Again, yeah. it's this idea that I am deserving of something and other people like need to also jump through a lot of hoops so so that it doesn't lessen the the value of what I have created for myself almost. Yeah. And also those people strangely do not see themselves as beneficiaries of public handouts, even though there are a ton of programs for homeowners. There are tax credits, there are grant programs, you know, in the in the city of Vancouver, but every other major city that I can think of, there are opportunities for seniors and sometimes like people who have young children to defer their property taxes. Like there are all these ways that homeowners can alleviate their costs or, you know, or take advantage of programs that are designed to add value to their asset. So like renovation grants or grants from the government for things like, you know, like energy efficiency. These are all things that, that homeowners can take advantage of that benefit them and benefit their investment. And nothing like that exists for renters. There are no renter rebates. There, I guess, will be one in BC for, you know, a segment of renters who meet this income threshold. But there's no means testing for a lot of the homeowner programs. So it it is really interesting, you know, when you consider that yeah. homeowners have, on average, across the country, according to Statistics Canada, more than 28 times the wealth of renters on average, and yet we still have this like entire funding scheme that's really geared towards benefiting owners. And yet, like you say, there, you know, when we talk about building public housing or funding public housing, a lot of those owners are like, well, that's not fair. Why don't I get any of this money? And it's like, well, you do. You get you get most of it. You might not see it that lot. Yeah. There's there's a yeah. lot going their way. That disparity, I guess, of the idea of whether something is deserving comes up a lot, you know, now that this discussion about zoning reform is coming up, right? This idea that when we upzone the value of land is Essentially, which previously had been deflated, this idea of land, that land's going to shoot up for a lot of these places. And a lot of people are saying like, well, you know, if it becomes way too expensive, you're forcing like this old retired couple who's living on a pension out from their home. And obviously, that's not something that's not the intent. That's not the idea. But yet when people are renters who are evicted from their homes, it's a totally different scenario. It's that people have to come together as tenants and advocate for why that's not okay and and fight for their right to get first right of refusal or to get, you know, rent back in. And it's just, again, society treating those two very similar situations very differently as if one is more deserving of compensation than the other. That's a very common theme. I mean, you see that in, you know, complaints about like rental caps and like rent increases being limited in in the provinces and cities where they are limited, where landlords see that as unfair. 
And you also see it <laughs> again in like, I see this conversation on Reddit almost every day where someone's landlord wants to raise the rent more than the legal maximum. And often what people will say is like, well, your landlord's been doing you a favor. Like they've been, you know, sounds like they've given you a good deal and and maybe you should pay them more than you legally have to. And And that's, I think, like an underlying attitude that's quite common is that renters are sort of living off the largesse of the owner class and they're like the beneficiaries of it. People see this, their investment that they're renting out as sort of a public service sometimes. And you see this in the dialogue where people are like threatening to sell and leave the business of landlording. And and that's sort of the product of, you know, again, how the government has really left this to individuals to like sort out rather than providing a structure that would make housing sort of sane and affordable. But but it is, again, also this idea that like renters have the secondary status in a lot of discussions in terms of how they're treated. They're seen as like not real members of the community and not real contributors. And sort of there's a lot of resentment, I think, when they're seen as like impediments to profit or or like desirable housing that, you know, if you're building an apartment building in a neighborhood where <laughs> maybe it's going to throw a shadow over somebody's yard, that's considered an infringement on their on their rights. <laughs> or it's also present, you know, when, when people push back, which is happening a lot in Vancouver with the sort of citywide rezoning discussions, there's a lot of opposition to putting rental housing and denser housing on side streets and kind of in the heart of neighborhoods. There's like still a lot of people who think that that yeah. belongs solely on arterials where, you know, there's worse air quality. There's a lot of noise pollution. Like there's still this idea that rental housing shouldn't be as nice as somebody's like single family home. And I think that's also something to push back on. Like, this idea of like neighborhood aesthetics and neighborhood character is really exclusionary. And I also frequently on my walks will take pictures of the most ridiculous architecture you can imagine, because I, I often feel like the aesthetics conversation is the biggest red herring when you see the monstrosities that some people are building. 100% agree. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite thing to do is when I'm visiting neighborhoods that I haven't visited often in Metro Vancouver is take a notice at like the houses that don't require a rezoning and therefore did not have to go through like some sort of grand design panel of architects. You just get the craziest things. Like you could have a house that's, you know, very heritage-like and then right next to it, it's like metal spaceship. And somehow neighborhood character is the reason why we can't add apartments in certain neighborhoods. So yeah, it's It's really something. I mean, it's definitely a specific lens. It's a very specific perspective that is looking at what is acceptable or not in our society, in our neighborhoods, in what we call neighborhood character, and even just the concept of land ownership and and buying a home and that land, that piece of land being yours, and therefore you're entitled to what you can do with it and and have a say in what other people in the neighborhood can do or who can come in. Like, I feel like that's a very colonial concept. It's very much a, you know, we've come here to get a piece of land that's ours to build wealth, to make what we can of it. Yeah. And it it makes for an uncomfortable discussion because I think there's it's very hard to think of a solution or sort of a fleet of solutions that doesn't require homeowners to adjust to the idea that their asset should not appreciate the way it has, for instance, in the last decade, like that, you know, that inflation of value should flatten out 
for a while to to yes you know that we need to cool the market not crash it ideally but cool it off and i think that's you know that's frightening for people and very threatening and i think that's been something that politicians in particular have been like really reluctant to confront right everybody's like we're going to make housing more affordable but we're not going to make anyone's housing less valuable and those are two really challenging promises to hold simultaneously and there's just so much campaigning always to the interests of seniors. And I, I do think it's interesting that we consider seniors like senior homeowners, this uniquely vulnerable group, because I feel like, you know, a lot of them are are in a much better financial position than their children or grandchildren could ever yeah. hope to be now. And whereas senior renters are like the most one of the most vulnerable groups because seniors who've been renting housing for a long time are, you know, if they get evicted, they are not in a position to compete with market rents. They are maybe not able to work anymore. So like they have very limited earning potential <laughs> to like catch up and pay for that yeah. $3,000 one bedroom. You know, there's whenever, whenever right. I hear these discussions of like, what about this pensioner who's going to be forced out of their home if we change the housing policy? It's like, well, what about the pensioner who's renting their basement suite who has nowhere to go? A quarter of seniors are renters. Michelle has summarized some of the key ways in which our society values homeowners and renters differently, and how these perceptions are further damaging when we layer the power imbalance between the two groups. The accumulation of wealth through owning property is also conflated with a belief that owning property entitles one to more say in their neighborhood, more control, and the ability to dictate whether others belong in that community. This furthers the massive imbalance between owners and renters. To wrap up our conversation, I asked Michelle to summarize how we could instead envision and describe housing wealth for the collective community. Yeah, I just I think like again it's not it's not about pushing any homeowner out of their home or onto the street. It's not about taking things away. It's about giving things to other people who've been excluded. It's about making it fair. And again, I think it does benefit everybody like having neighborhoods that are vibrant. Like having neighborhoods that that have, you know, enough people in them is necessary. I think we can see in like West Point Gray, where it's kind of a ghost town now because no one can afford to live there. It benefits everybody to have neighborhoods that are affordable and inclusive. Some will say socialism or communism, but I think it's just, you know, taking the empathy that you want to feel from your neighbors and giving it back. Pretty simple. Thank you, Michelle. I I really enjoyed that. I was super excited for our conversation. And I'm sure there's like, if we had more time, there's so many other topics that I'm sure that I'd love to cover. But yeah, really appreciated you taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you for having me on. Maybe season two of the podcast. We can do this again. It's clear there's an incredible power imbalance between homeowners and renters. This is evident both overtly in our housing policies but also in the underlying way our society views these two groups. We have a whole host of benefits for homeowners, but very little to protect the growing population of renters or any other type of housing tenure. Our societal perceptions towards housing tenure also furthers that inequity. In addition to our obsession with home ownership as the end goal, there are many stigmas against renting, from being seen as threats to a neighborhood to being seen as people who are less contributing to our society. Homeownership is also conflated with more perceived investment and control in one's neighborhood 
and many homeowners use this leverage to encourage policy decisions that further housing scarcity, both in terms of where housing can be built and how much public funding is available for housing. Creating more equity in our housing crisis requires addressing this deep disparity. Though past generations may have seen homeownership as an end goal achievable through hard work and determination, evidence shows that this is no longer the case. Incomes have stagnated while the cost of housing has soared, with the favorable lending conditions on top of stringent housing policies that limit the amount of new homes, housing increasingly has become a tool for amassing concentrated pools of intergenerational wealth. And so we have a key paradox. We have a culture that deems homeownership as the ideal tenure and end goal of hard work, when in reality, it is increasingly due to intergenerational wealth than it is due to merit. Ultimately, we need to challenge our cultural ideals of homeownership and our current fixation with housing value. Instead of seeing housing wealth as a means and sign of individual success, we should instead focus on abundant housing as a collective good, where everyone's ability to access safe, secure, and affordable housing is not limited by their tenure and not at the mercy of individual motivations to amass wealth. On our next development, we're going to wrap up this season of Urbanism Vancouver by summarizing some of the policy changes we've seen since our first episode and explore the future of housing. I hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Urbanism Vancouver, the podcast dedicated to bettering our built environment. Be sure to follow us on your listening platform of choice so you don't miss our future releases. I'm Helen Loy. Thanks for listening. This podcast series was independently funded and produced by myself and Aaron Johnson. Visit us at urbanismvancouver.com.